in Holy Scripture to Revelation chapter 1. This is the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I call our attention to verses 9, 10, and 11. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day 
and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Patmos is an island that is located some 30 miles or so off of the western coast of the modern nation that we call Turkey. It's quite a rocky island. There are very few trees there today, although it's said it used to be covered in palm trees at one point. There was a fortress built there by the ancient Greeks, which has since been dismantled and its materials recycled. There also used to be a temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, the goddess of fertility, but now an Eastern Orthodox monastery sits on the site. You could go there on vacation if you don't mind an eight-hour ferry ride or to go island hopping in a little plane Well, for a short while, a man named John could be found on this island. This was during the reign of a Roman emperor named Domitian, who ruled in the early to mid-90s A.D. John was quite an old man by this time, and he was not visiting Patmos on vacation, but he had been sent there by force as an exile. The powers that be did not like what John was saying and doing in some of the cities on the mainland of what today is called Turkey, but then was called Asia Minor. And so they flung him onto this island to get him out of the way. There was a greater king than Domitian, however, who wanted John to be on the island of Patmos at this time. No doubt, John was upset when he was sent away as an exile, and no doubt the Christians in Asia Minor, in the churches there, were unsettled and afraid by his sudden absence. But Jesus knew what he was doing. And Jesus needed to pull John out of the busyness of his work as an apostle among all of these churches and to set him in a quiet place on an island by himself. And there on that island of Patmos, Jesus came to meet John in the spirit of prophecy and apocalyptic vision. And Jesus, by the Spirit, showed John what things must shortly come to pass to bring about the final ending of the kingdoms of evil and of this world and to bring about the final triumph of his kingdom, the kingdom of righteousness and of heaven. It's amazing how God is able to take a bad situation and turn it into something that is very, very good and has ripple effects that go on and on and on into the ages. That was the case here. There was no more powerful way for the Lord to speak to his church in tribulation than this way through the vision of hope and victory that he gave to John the apostle, 
as he himself was experiencing tribulation as an exile on the island of Patmos. I call our attention this evening to our text, and the theme is a vision for the church in tribulation. First, we will see that this vision was received and then penned by a co-sufferer, a companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So John identifies himself. Secondly, that John received this vision while he was in the spirit, the spirit of prophecy. And finally, that this vision was sent by the king through John to his church, represented by the seven churches there on the mainland of Asia Minor. Vision for the church in tribulation, first penned by a co-sufferer, secondly, received in the spirit, finally, sent by the king. This text indicates that the book that we call the book of Revelation, which is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, was written at a time of tribulation for the church. Tribulation is a word that refers to intense pressure of external circumstances that are placed upon the church. Think of what happens to an animal when it is trapped in the coils of a python. A python is a constrictor, which means that it kills its prey by wrapping itself around the body of its prey and then squeezing the life out of it, putting that intense pressure on its prey. It breaks bones and it suffocates that animal before stretching its huge mouth over its now dead body and devouring it whole. When the church is under tribulation, it's like the devil through the world has wrapped his coils around her and then he attempts to squeeze the life out of the church slowly at first, but firmly and ever more tightly and intensely. Tribulation is painful and it is scary for that reason, for the intention of the devil and the world that, is, that has the devil behind it is very much to destroy and to kill and to devour. The Bible, as it does here, often connects the kingdom of God to the experience of tribulation in this world. When the Apostle Paul visited the churches that he planted recently in Galatia, he exhorted them to persevere and he warned them, this is Acts 14.22, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. This is only his second time being among those churches, confirming them on his second missionary journey. Why does he give them such a dire warning? Why so negative? Why so apparently pessimistic? Well, that's because this was already the experience of those churches. Paul himself was stoned and beaten half to death as he was laboring to plant those churches in Galatia. And then that was the experience of the Christians there after Paul left. They experienced tribulation. So as Paul confirms them in the faith, he reminds them it is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. The citizen of the kingdom of heaven, by the nature of the case, is the target for such tribulation. 
He or she speaks and lives for God. And if he is faithful to his calling, testifies against the evil of this world. He is a child of light who walks in the midst of the darkness. And he or she is also very vulnerable for that reason. The Christian is unable to use the methods that the world uses. The methods of lying and cheating. The methods of backstabbing. The methods of breaking oaths and bending the truth in order to get one's way. The child of God in this present evil age is called to be wise as a serpent, the Lord says, but also as harmless as a dove. He is sent forth as a lamb among wolves. The Christian is of necessity always walking near the thick body, the thick coils of that devouring python. That is why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They shall. That's a fact. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and tribulation go together in this life. But the effect of this tribulation on the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is always exactly the opposite of what is intended by those who inflict the tribulation. The effect in the child of God is patience, the patience of Jesus Christ. Patience in the Bible doesn't mean what we often mean by patience, which means that I put up with an extra two-minute wait before I can use the bathroom, or I put up with an extra 30-second wait while my video downloads because my internet connection is slow. Patience in the Bible means growth and wisdom. Patience in the Bible means growth in maturity of character that results when a Christian is forced because he is under tribulation to rely by his faith on God alone. Patience is a virtue. It's the virtue that was exhibited by Job as he sat on the ash pile of his suffering and endured false accusation after false accusation after false accusation from those miserable comforters who were supposed to be his friends. As they pressed on Job, accusing him of things that were not true, what was Job's response? In none of these things did he charge God foolishly. As Job's wife called on him to curse God and die in despair, what does Job do? He blesses God instead and he confesses his trust in God's sovereignty and God's goodness. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now patience does not mean we turn suffering into something it's not. Patience doesn't mean that we grit our teeth and we force a smile on our face and we pretend that we enjoy something that's actually very painful. Patience rather allows us to acknowledge the suffering for what it is, but patience looks beyond that suffering. Patience is the prelude to hope. We know that tribulation worketh patience, Paul says in Romans 5, and patience works experience and experience hope. And that is why John brings up the fact that he is a companion in tribulation, but not only in tribulation, but in the patience and kingdom of Jesus. 
He's acknowledging the reality around him that the church in his day was very much experiencing. We are in tribulation. We are experiencing tribulation. We should have expected this as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is what happens to those who are called by Jesus Christ. It is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. But, beloved, the Lord has given me a vision that will enable you to endure this tribulation by looking beyond it. He has given me a vision of hope. He has given me a vision of the kingdom. That mighty python that seems so imposing and terrifying to you has a head with a footprint on it and a mighty bruise, a fatal wound. And his body is going to be cast into the lake of fire one day. His fate is sealed. The day of better things is ahead. The day of victory is coming. The day of triumph of the Lamb. Be patient. Endure. John himself was no stranger to tribulation. This is the same man who is described in the Gospel account that he wrote as that disciple whom Jesus loved. This is one of those disciples who was there in the Garden of Gethsemane watching Jesus in his agony only to find Judas Iscariot marching in at, at a band of a mob to arrest him and to betray them all. John was standing there in the court of Pontius Pilate when Jesus, his Lord, was innocently condemned. John was standing there by the cross when Jesus was pierced and his naked body was lifted up and jeered at and put to shame. John saw all of this until that point when Jesus locked eyes with him and said, you see my mother there? I want you to take her home and be a son to her since I'm going from this life. The terror of those days, of course, changed to joy when Jesus rose from the dead. And John was a witness of that as well. He stood there looking into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes which Jesus' body had passed through still lying there as if his body was in it, but there was no body. John saw the risen and glorified Jesus himself alive, showing the holes in his hands and in his side to Thomas in order to confirm him in the faith. John learned something in those days of the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus. Now John was an old man and he had seen more tribulation as an apostle of the risen and ascended Lord. John's own flesh and blood brother and fellow apostle James was taken by Herod and killed by the sword in the early days of the church. Peter Simon Peter was one of John's closest friends and something of a foil to his personality. Where John was thoughtful and contemplative, Peter was bold and often brash. But by the time that John received this vision, by the time that John was in exile on the island of Patmos, Peter had been carried off with his hands stretched out on a cross of his own where he was crucified, just like his Lord, probably upside down, and all of this Jesus had prophesied in John 21, verse 18. By the time John was taking pen in hand and writing down the words of this vision, 
The Apostle Paul was also gone, probably beheaded by order of Emperor Nero. And surely many more of the saints whom John knew and served with and loved had also suffered death by the sword, experiencing tribulation of various sorts in a world that hated Christ and hated his kingdom. Yet here John remains, an old man, and instead of seeing tribulation letting up, he sees it getting worse. Tribulation was sporadic and inconsistent at first in the early days of the New, church, of the New Testament church. Then it ramped up and became more intense when Nero was the emperor. But with the coming of Domitian, tribulation was becoming not only intense, but it was becoming widespread and it was becoming systematic. There was a deliberate attempt to stamp out the church that had grown exponentially. And all that's left for John now is to sit and think about all the pressures and all the problems and all the tribulation that is faced by seven real churches in seven real cities that he knows and loves so well. And he himself, not unscathed by that tribulation, exiled in Patmos. John writes these words, of course, as an apostle. That's part of what gives him the authority to write down Holy Scripture. But notice that he identifies himself not as an apostle, but as a brother as a companion, as a co-laborer, a co-sufferer in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patience of Jesus. That's worth noting. What's John saying? He's saying, I know what you're going through. I know what you're experiencing. It's my own experience. I've gone through it myself. But if we fix our minds on this tribulation, if we fix our minds on this suffering and these problems, and that's all we ever think about so that all we see is them, all we see is the winds and the waves, all we see is that mighty python wrapping his coils around us, if that's all we think about, we're going to lose hope. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to become fearful. We're going to run. Fix your mind instead on this. Fix your mind on this vision of the King in His glory and in His triumph and in the certainty of the coming of a better day. Tribulation continues to be the experience of the church of Jesus Christ. I think we tend to forget how real this is for many Christians in our own time. I think maybe we forget to pray for the church that experiences tribulation. But try being a Christian today in a place like North Korea. Try being a Christian today in Afghanistan where the Taliban sometimes behead somebody who's a non-Muslim just to inspire fear in everybody else. Try being a Christian in India where there is a deliberate, systematic campaign to oust anyone who's not a Hindu from the nation and therefore Christians are targeted. Try being a Christian in China where one day your pastor 
and be preaching from your pulpit and the next day he can be arrested, disappear, never to be heard from, never to be seen from again. And if you're going to worship in a true church, you have to go underground. You have to risk the fact that you might be seen, you might be discovered, and you might be arrested yourself. God's people all over the world experience tribulation as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. It's here too. I know we experience relative peace and relative freedom of religion, but it is here too in our own nation. Let's not forget that. It takes a lot of clever maneuvering for a python to get its coils around its prey. It has to catch it unawares. Sleeping, perhaps, and then slowly start working its body around and around and around. You see that in a society like our own, where the church has been relatively safe, relatively secure, relatively free and comfortable. But all around us, there are changes happening. Changes so that words that once had a Christian meaning now mean something else. And what once was love is now hatred. And what once was hatred is now love. And good is evil, and evil is good, and light becomes darkness, and darkness becomes light. And gradually the Christian finds he doesn't really feel at home anymore. He doesn't really feel that there's a place for him anymore. And perhaps the world gets its hooks into his children and pulls them away. And perhaps he finds that there are social consequences in the workplace or in society at large if he does not accommodate to what the Bible calls sin. And eventually he finds himself stranded, exiled on a kind of social island, hemmed in and constricted. Now, we have to be careful, beloved. We mustn't interpret every change in society as if every change that happens is some sort of persecution. We have to be careful to know the difference between tribulation as citizens of the kingdom and simple dysfunction in society. It's not necessarily tribulation when laws that you disagree with are passed. It's not necessarily tribulation when styles and trends change in the world over time. That's going to happen. But even with that qualification, and we do have to be careful, but even with that qualification, I think we can see the direction the world is going, can't we? And we better have a mindset as Christians of watchfulness. We better have a mindset as Christians of readiness. That's the importance of this vision of the apocalypse. Beloved, when you consider the powers at work to undermine and destroy the kingdom of Jesus. This is far deeper than any conspiracy theory can account for. This is far bigger than any one man or any one organization. The devil has been around for a long time. He's very smart. He's very clever. And when we start seeing the coils wrapping around the church, it's easy to become fearful. It's easy to give in to despair, to say, why fight it? Why be faithful? Clean hands are worthless. Pure hearts are vain. But not so when you see the vision. 
Not so when you see the Lamb in His glory holding that book sealed with seven seals that has the future contained in it, a future of glory and good for the church of Jesus Christ. Not so when you know the end of that great serpent called the devil and Satan who is going to be cast into the lake of fire. When you know that, then it doesn't matter what kind of changes you see happening in the world around you. It doesn't matter what kind of tribulation might be in our future. You can be patient. You can hope. You can endure. John knew this as he sat on the island of Patmos on the Lord's day, writing down the vision and preparing to send it to the churches. John tells us then that he received this vision while he was in the Spirit. And when he says he was in the Spirit, it's evident he means he was in the Spirit in a unique sort of way. You can say that every believer is in the Spirit from a certain point of view. That is the enduring legacy of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ was poured out on the church and all of her members to empower her witness. The result is that the young men see visions and the old men dream dreams and her, her sons and her daughters prophesy from the greatest to the smallest and everyone in between. All have an unction from the Holy One, John says in 1 John 2. And you know all things. Every believer is in the Spirit in a certain sense. But John was an apostle living in the days when the canon of Scripture was not yet complete. And in those days it sometimes happened that believers received Special visions, special revelations, special prophecies from God in the Spirit. We read of Agabus the prophet, for example, in Acts 11.28, who, who spoke accurately of a great drought or famine that was coming in the future. In the Old Testament, the prophets were so moved by the Spirit that they, they spoke the Word of God and they spoke that Word Directly, not through the means of Scripture, but directly. That's why they had to say, Thus saith the Lord, before they opened their mouth and spoke, for it was God's Word, every syllable. They were speaking in the Spirit as a prophet. Well, that's what John means here when he says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was being given a new revelation in the form of a prophetic, apocalyptic vision. Now exactly what that felt like for John, we're not told exactly, but it was unique. It was powerful. The vision that he received was not some sort of vague and mystical dream that could mean just about anything uh, like the kind of dreams that charismatic teachers sometimes claim to have. No, it was a clear and powerful vision with a precise and definite meaning that can be understood as you compare Scripture with Scripture and as you study that vision in comparison with the whole revelation that God has given to that time. It was a prophetic word given by the inspiration of God. A special and new revelation. That's evident. He uses that phrase in the Spirit more than on this occasion. 
And it's evident that each time that he uses that word, he's talking about a new revelation, a prophetic revelation that God is giving giving him. In chapter 4, for example, John sees what looks like a trap door open into heaven and a voice calling him up. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 2, and immediately I was in the Spirit. And he sees a vision of God's throne room. That doesn't mean that he was physically transmitted into heaven, but in the Spirit, prophetically, He received a vision of the throne room of heaven. In chapter 17, an angel promises John that he will show him the judgment of the great whore. And then John says he was carried away in the spirit into the wilderness where he saw a harlot riding on a beast and he saw what happened to that harlot who was destroyed in God's judgment. Jesus Christ was giving to the disciple whom he loved a new revelation, a prophetic vision not seen before. It was the last time that this sort of thing would happen. It was the last prophetic word before the canon of Scripture would be closed and the era of the apostles would come to an end. And what this tells us is that the vision given to John carries the weight of divine authority. The vision is not a product of John's overactive imagination. It is not a cunningly devised fable or myth that he is presenting, but which has no real basis in truth. It is a vision from God. It is a window through which John saw things which are and things which will be. It was a window through which John saw reality, the unfolding of God's work that would bring the kingdom of Christ to its fullness. This was all given to John in the Spirit. And if you study this book, you will discover that it bears the marks of authenticity. It is true that sometimes frauds claim to have new visions and new revelations from God, such as Muhammad and Joseph Smith and the like. But what exposes these as frauds is that they, the, the visions that they are given clearly contradict the revelation that has already been given But this vision that John receives in the Spirit does not do that. On the contrary, the vision that John receives clearly interacts with and accords with and builds on what was previously recorded or or revealed. This vision does not contradict the apocalyptic visions of Daniel and Ezekiel, but it presses the message of those visions home in light of the coming of Jesus Christ that John has seen in his own day. This vision does not undermine the story of the gospel that was told in the other books of the Bible, but it completes that story. It brings that story to its final resolution in the future. We see Jesus in the book of Revelation, not just dead and risen again, but victorious, standing at the right hand of his Father. We see things through this vision that we cannot see any other way, but it is the unfolding of the work that began when Jesus said it is finished on his cross. And it all harmonizes with everything else that God has shown. It's authentic. It's authoritative. It was given in the Spirit. There are two practical implications that we ought to consider at this point. The first of which is this. We can rely on this vision And we can rely on it specifically as an accurate telling of our future. 
You can rely on this vision as an accurate telling of your future. As a vision received in the Spirit, what John saw and wrote down for us is the truth. And it's not John's truth or the Christian's truth, but it's the truth. It's the truth that speaks to the future of all human beings. It's the truth that speaks to the future of all kingdoms and cultures. It is the truth that is timeless and revelatory if you are a human being, if you have a mind and a heart, if you have a soul, if you have eyes, you will see the things written here coming to pass. You will. That's dreadful news for the ungodly who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. That's dreadful news for those who worship the beast. That is, who submit to the kingdom of darkness in this world and receive the mark of the Antichrist. That's dreadful news for the kings and the princes of this world, men like Nero and Domitian and the rulers today who bring down tribulation on the people of God. The Spirit of the living God testifies that a day of retribution and judgment is on the horizon. That same Spirit tells us that the wars and the plagues and the calamities and the troubles that we see today are only precursors to the wrath that is on the horizon. Do not take this lightly. Do not say that the future predicted in this book is a long time from now. I have time. Rather, let your heart be broken over sin. Turn to the living God in repentance and faith. Say, it is better to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a fleeting season. For the believing child of God, however, the authority of the vision is the ground of all his or her hope. Why suffer yourself to be exiled on an island when you could enjoy freedom in this world just by renouncing Christ? Why get caught up in the coils of this python when you could have that old serpent as your friend and ally? Why? Because you know that the power of the devil, though imposing today, is in truth broken already by Christ. And his kingdom is passing away along with this world. But Christ and his kingdom is coming. The king of the whole world is coming. And he's coming with a kingdom that will last forever and ever. Hold on! Beloved people of God, hold on! Hold on today and on that future day when you find the coils of that snake wrapped around you and you experience the tribulation that John experienced and which God's people elsewhere in the world experience today, hold on! Endure tribulation with patience as the citizen of the kingdom of heaven that you are. For when you see him in his glory on that day, it's going to be like waking up from a bad dream. It's going to be like bright dawn breaking on a dark night. God says so. God says so. 
the Spirit says so. And he showed it to John, our brother, and our companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus. The second practical implication that comes to us when we consider that this vision was given in the Spirit and therefore is authoritative and authentic is this. The vision ought to fuel the life and worship of the church as she lives in the last days. John tells us that he was in the Spirit specifically on the Lord's day. He's talking about the first day of the week. He's talking about that day when the church gathers together for worship. It's not difficult to imagine John sitting on the island of Patmos, isn't it? Longing to be with the people of God, just like God's people exiled in Babylon long before remembered the privileges of long ago. And as he's sitting there on the Lord's day, exiled in Patmos, his thoughts turn toward the church and the Spirit fills his mind and enlightens him and carries him away in this vision. But the fact that John experienced this vision on the Lord's day is a cue. It's a cue that tells us how this vision is supposed to function in the church's life. We worship on the Lord's day. We worship on the first day of the week. Why? Because our outlook is future. We worship not only looking to the past, although we do, but we worship looking to the future. We worship in hope. We worship, and our worship is a foretaste of the glories and the joys that are coming to all who wait and who look for the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You look at it that way. You think of Sunday, the Lord's Day, that way. Oh, in the world, I experience tribulation. And in my life, there's trouble. But when I'm in the Lord's house, and it's the Lord's day, it's like the kingdom has come right down to me. And I'm carried away in the Spirit up into heaven itself. And I can see, I can see Him coming. Being in the Spirit then, John heard a voice coming from somewhere behind him. It was a great voice. It sounded like a trumpet. Like the, the old trumpet that they used in those days to call the troops into battle. Or the trumpet that they used to call the people into the temple that had a distinct sound. And yet this trumpet was not only a trumpet, but clearly there were words coming forth as well as sounds. The only other time such a sound or such a voice was heard was when Mount Sinai was thundering and smoking and the people stood afar off because they were afraid to hear God speaking to them. What John heard behind him was the voice of God speaking to him. But later on, John's going to turn around and he's going to see who was talking to him. 
And it's amazing, isn't it? I don't want to get too much into this because this is going to be the subject of the next sermon in the series, but John hears the voice of God behind him. And when he turns around, he sees somebody he recognizes and knows because it's somebody who he spent much time with on this world. But he looks different. He's glorified with the glory of heaven, glorified with divine holiness and majesty. It's Jesus, Jesus speaking to him, the Son of God in flesh, glorified as the as the Messiah who has finished his work and is establishing his kingdom. And now he speaks to John as the high king of heaven, bearing all the authority of God. And what does the voice say? John, disciple whom I love, when you see this vision that I'm about to show you, write it down. And when you write it down in a scroll, wrap it up. Seal it and send it off the island of Patmos back to those seven churches so that they also can see the vision. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. As we continue in the series, of course, we'll be looking at each of these churches in turn because Jesus has a specific word for each of them in chapters 2 and 3. And as we do that, we'll see that almost all of these churches are beset by problems. Each of them has different strengths and each of them has different weaknesses. Ephesus is strong in its defense of the faith, but it has fallen into dead orthodoxy because it has forsaken its first love. Thyatira is strong in its practice of Christian charity, but it has tolerated this Jezebel to seduce the Christians into godless living. Laodicea is neither hot nor cold, but is lukewarm, so that the Lord says, I will spew you from my mouth. Problems, strengths, but also shortcomings, serious shortcomings. But here, we just want to notice that all of them are called churches, aren't they? The seven churches. And that ought to strike us. Every one of these churches Though some are weak in doctrine and others are weak in practice, every one of them has a golden candlestick with a flickering flame of the witness of Jesus Christ. They are churches, and not only churches, but true churches. And the king has a word for them, a word that he sends in all of his righteousness and holiness and majesty and grace and mercy and kindness. And he shows them the vision of the kingdom that is coming in order to comfort them and to correct them and to give them hope. Hope to his people, his people who could be found in every one of those seven churches. We should also notice that Jesus in this text clearly has his eye on the local church the local instituted congregation with her members living out their Christian lives as a body in real time, in real space. John was not able to leave Patmos to preach in the seven churches. So Jesus says, send, that is, send a courier, send a messenger. And if you look at a map, you'll find that if you could get on a boat from Patmos 
and go directly to the mainland of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. The city of Ephesus would be pretty directly off of the coast. And then you can go in a cycle and hit all of those churches just as they are listed here. Smyrna, Pergamos, and all the others, they follow in a circuit. And no doubt that's exactly what happened when this letter was completed. A messenger went from Patmos across the sea to Ephesus and from Ephesus to Smyrna and to all of the churches reading the messages that Jesus had for all of them and the vision. And real believers, along with their pastor who's identified as the angel or the messenger and all the other office bearers heard the words of the king. And now you hear them. First Protestant Reformed Church of Grand Rapids, Michigan, could just as well be Ephesus or Smyrna or Thyatira, a congregation with its own strengths and its own weaknesses, but one of the seven churches, a true church of Jesus Christ. And the, the high king of heaven has his eye on us, his eye on you, and he shows us a vision sent from John, who was in the Spirit on the Lord's day to comfort us, and to give us hope in our tribulations. Let's behold that vision. Let's receive it by faith and live in hope of the coming of the kingdom of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee that the King of heaven has His eye on us That he is not above seeing the daily workings of a local congregation such as our own and the lives of her members and the goings-on and the teaching that is delivered from the pulpit. And he's not above correcting us when we need correction. And he's not above commending us when we do things well. But we're thankful most of all that he identifies us as a church. And we pray, O oh Father, that as the vision comes to us and is unfolded before us in this series, we pray work faith and hope and love in us and the ability to endure tribulation with the kingdom of Jesus Christ and in the patience of the Lord. We are not sufficient for these things in ourselves, but we know, O Lord, that thy grace is made perfect in our weakness. So it is to thee that we look. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.